He really loves me, she thought. Inside, she felt a raw tremor of shock and a vague sense of loss. It was too late. The Indian passed the receipt to him. He placed it inside his jacket. Run, she said softly. This is Genre, where we read genre classics and folk gold, and we watch the occasional books. We try to keep all our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so we can draw connections between genres. Can we create a web of connections between books in different genres and time periods? I don't know, but we're going to try. Right now, we're reading the final book now for a romance series, Lust Caution by Eileen Jack. Well, I'm Bob, and I'm interested in the performance of romance. I'm John. This week, I'm interested in whether anyone really loves anyone else in this unconventional romance. I'm Zach. So this one really excites me. I'm interested in how this story is a black hole that just pulls in stuff from other genres around it. Like you see historical fiction. There's it's it's infused with some autobiography, but also espionage can detect a little bit of existential literature. Like it's kind of pulling from Sartre a little bit. There's just, there's a lot going on here. When was this book written? Well, she read, she wrote it for a long time. I think it was originally written and then rewritten and rewritten it for in the 40s, 10, right? Yeah, a 10 year period, but she published it late. Oh no, 1979. Published. But she, yeah, but she, she worked on it for decades. Well, maybe decades, not just 10 years. Yeah. I, I, you know, 1979, that, that feels about right. I don't think you could write a story set in the time period that this story is set. I don't think you could write that simultaneously with the action happening. You need to have the distance of a couple decades to kind of mull over the events and fictionalize it and, and figure out what you want to say. Yeah, but it sounds like she was really formulating this story very shortly after World War II and, you know, when the events are actually taking place. So for people who are joining us who've never read this story before, and it's a very short story, so I hopefully everyone has read it. What happens in this book? What what are we dealing with here? Well, our protagonist here is Wang Chia who is a young radical who is part of a group in Hong Kong who were rebelling against the current collaboration government and between the Chinese and the Japanese who were essentially conquered in China. So I think in Nanjing, it's, uh, it's called a Romana Clef in the sense that this is a story about real events using sort of slightly fictionalized names. And this is a radical group in Hong Kong, essentially rebelling against the Japanese occupation of China and the, the, the elements of the Chinese government that are collaborating with the Japanese. And so she is targeted, Mr. Yi, who is one of these people who is in government and collaborating with the Japanese. And she's ultimately trying to bring him down by having an affair with him, then, you know, acting as a honey trap so that he can be captured and, and killed in the interest of overthrowing this this collaboration is going on in Hong Kong and also in mainland China. So so it's interesting how, like, on a, on a term of a narrative level, what you've just described is essentially a spy novel. And that's cool yes. because our next round of books is spy novels, so this is a fun bridge into that. But outside of the narrative, we have all of these personal dynamics that are really rich. I, I think rich is the right word to use. We have we have the the dynamics between Wang Jiajiu and Mr. Yi, which are simultaneously artificial. Like both know they're playing a part. Mr. Yi is playing the wealthy benefactor who has affairs with young women. And Wang Jiajiu is playing, you know, that woman, the 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 other woman. 
you can kind of read in how how you know she says at one point if she didn't ask him for material things like like new earrings then he would question her motives so she's playing a part yes but at some point that artificiality is bridged and they actually feel something for each other and that's the heart of the story for me yeah i mean i think that's where it transfers over from being a spy story to a romance the moment that um her romantic interest in this man mr Yi, ultimately uh conflicts with her instrumental interest in you know bringing about the aims of her sort of the other radicals who are rebelling against this government and when she chooses you know the romantic element of the story over her instrumental role within that plot i think that's when it ultimately goes over from being a spy novel to a romance i think in a spy novel she would have carried out her orders and she <laughs> might have felt sad about it afterwards but she would have still done what she was meant to do as a as a spy essentially but in here she abdicates that role as a, a member of the plot and prioritizes her own individual romantic interest with misty and the moment seems to be here when she's he's buying her this, this pink diamond uh, ring and she realizes she really loves me or at least she thinks she really loves her and that's when he, she can't stand anymore to go through with the plot and she lets him escape but then irony ironies after he's escaped he shuts down the city and orders the execution of every single person involved in the plot including Wang Sasha you know whether he felt that romance is very questionable as well you know it seems like he sort of feels regret that she had to die but you know he ultimately prioritizes maintaining his own status quo in his life and saving his own mate and you know actually protecting this woman he apparently loves so it, it seems that she almost loves him more than she he loves her and that really doesn't make any sense because he's this quite sort of diminutive old fellow and she's presumably young and beautiful so yeah very cool. interesting let me find the final paragraph because i i really would question whether he feels nothing for her he says he uh, loved her the true love yeah, yeah, he says like that was the one true love. Yeah, yeah. Like he says, like, so I think a good counterpoint to this book is something like Casino Royale by Ian Fleming, the first James Bond novel. Because I, I and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was in that book. He goes on this honeymoon with this woman, and then it turns out that she's working for the other side. So then at the the end of this long romance, like romancing period, he learns the truth. And he kills her and he just kind of has this kind of like blase, like, you know, I did, I did what I have to do. Like, oh, well, you know, so in the James Bond sense in the Fleming universe, duty comes before love here. What happens is we're doing duty, but then love ends up superseding the duty for Wong Jaju. But for Mr. Yi, that transformation doesn't happen. Upon realizing that she's on the other side, duty still overcomes love. Well, I say it's interesting that each one seems to love the other when they're convinced that the other one loves them. Right? Like she has that turnaround when she becomes finally convinced that he actually does love her. That's when she can't stand to go through the plot anymore. And then having escaped, he says of her that so she had really loved him, his first true love. What a stroke of luck. And then he talked later on about how now that he had enjoyed the love of a beautiful woman, he could die happy, without regret. He could feel her shadow forever near him, comforting him. Even though she had hated him at the end, when he killed her, she had at least felt something. And now he possessed her utterly, primitively, as a hunter does his quarry, a tiger his kill. Alive, her body belonged to him. Dead, she was his ghost. So there's this 
emphasis in it of them having loved you, that that being an important thing, rather than them actually loving the other person. And they don't seem to have this moment simultaneously either. She has this moment first when she thinks he loves her, and then he has that moment afterwards where he realizes she must have loved him for letting him escape. So, you know, it's questionable whether they really loved her, loved each other during, you know, the time of their actual romance, their actual being together. It always seems to be so based on the other person's feelings. And in certainly in Misty E's case, being very much retrospectively, he loved her after having killed her. So I think that's part of the great psychological depth of Eileen Chung in the sense that, yeah, love is asynchronous. Love is highly personal. You know, there's not two people in love. There's two people who are independently experiencing the other and feeling feeling what they interpret as love. I'll just read a, a quick smattering of quotes from a section, slightly edited, but he was gazing off into the middle distance, a faintly sorrowful smile on his face. He had never dared dream such happiness would come his way in middle age. It was, of course, his power and position that he had principally to thank. They were an inseparable part of him. So, so he's feeling happiness. He's feeling something that is then tainted or perhaps underlied with the knowledge that, you know, from his perspective, it's not him that is the object of love. It's the power and the position of which he is merely sitting on top of. So then he was an old hand at this, taking his paramour shopping, ministering to their whims, retreating into the background while they made their choices. So this isn't his first time doing this. This is just another repetition of a pattern that he has experienced. Yeah. But there was, she noted again, so she is the one who's noting this, but there was, she noted again, no cynicism in his smile just then, only sadness. So despite those repetitions, she detects that he is authentically feeling the, like the feelings of romance. That, that, and that's the moment of recognition for her. Yeah, I mean, it seems like also he's talking about how, like, you know, for the first time he has experienced the love of a beautiful woman. So all these other times he's been through this rigmarole, he's never once felt loved before. Whereas on this one occasion, he actually feels that that love has been returned to him, that love, the ends of love have been like, sort of projected onto him by this woman. So even though he's an old hand at, you know, having these sort of young maidens, this is the first one that he actually believes felt something for him. And therefore he feels something for her. Well, so so that's that's the question of like before he felt the position was the object of love from these young maidens. Right. I don't know if I like the word young maidens, but we'll we'll stick with it. This time he feels like he himself, his individuality is the object of the person's love. And that makes him feel something. That that makes it that that wipes away his cynicism towards what's going on. And also, it's important to note that like the, the kind of catalyst for this change is that he buys her a ring without her prompting. She, her prompt to him is, I want to get my earrings repaired. Now, previously, he had said, oh, we got to get you a real ring, yada, yada, yada. But he kind of drops it and forgets it over the course of a number of meetings and, and, and trysts that they had together. But this time, he says to her, oh, like... Yes, earrings, but let me let me make good on that promise of getting you a ring that I that I had said earlier. And that's kind of the shift right there, or like the catalyst of a shift of their relationship moving to a different level. The ring symbolizing marriage almost. 
Almost, yeah. So it's it's interesting that he is married. Yi Tai Tai. So so Tai Tai being a how would we explain Tai Tai? So it's a it's not a title, but it's a kind of like position one holds. It kind of means like on a very basic level, it means wife, but it also kind of means like like when a guy said like in the West when when a guy says ah oh, my old lady, I feel like like yeah. old lady is kind of yeah, Tai Tai. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the best way to put it because it also has this conversation of like you said, age, age, yeah, a couple of grandmas almost, but it's obviously not his wife as well. Yeah, it, it, she is Tai Tai, like she is posing as my Tai Tai. Yeah, and she's young, as so it's like age plot. isn't really the thing. It's kind of like this. But the the other Tai Tai are much older than she is. As well, but that's very much like very clear in the story. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. what, the reason she, like, before she can even start with the affair with Mr. Yi, she has to first get through Yi Tai Tai to get to Mr. Yi. <laughs> she has to make friends with these, these old Tai Tais. Sure. And the precepts for that, as I understand it, is that they are not from Hong Kong. They are sort of Shanghai Chinese who have come to Hong Kong and they need a, a sort of a young Hong Konger to um, kind of guide them around and show them around, legally speaking. I don't quite understand speaks- why, but that seems well, to be the general Cantonese. idea. They need to have someone yeah. who speaks Cantonese. Well, yeah, they need to someone who speaks Cantonese, yeah. So that's so like her function of like she wins over the Tai Tais first. And in order to do so, she has to be a Tai Tai herself, otherwise she'd be a threat. Um, yeah, she's a so student, she's a big threat. Yeah. She's like, yeah, and if she was a student, it'd be a big threat. So she's the young your wife of the young professional, Mr. Man, who I think has lost a lot of money recently. <laughs> Hence why she's not very wealthy. So yeah, it's a very like elaborately put together plot. Um, with multiple elements before she does get to Missy in the end. But it's interesting how the other Tai Tais understand what's going on. So at the end, it's revealed that that the other Tai Tais recognize that there is an affair happening. I mean, it says they understood each other perfectly and they describe the kind of psychology of Mr. Yi when he comes back from meeting. And so, so there's a recognition that affairs are happening, but it's a kind of it, they don't. They don't seem to be bothered by it. I mean, maybe I misread it. It's a. It's a very short aside, I guess I would say in this. But at the very end, it seems like there's this revelation that the Tai Tais perfectly understand that an affair is happening. They may not understand the political dimension, but they understand an emotional dimension of their relationship. Let me read that quote. Mister Yi has certainly had a run of luck lately. Ma Tai Tai pronounced, looking at him and smiling again. They understood each other perfectly. She could hardly have failed to notice the two of them disappear, oh, yeah. one after the other, and the girl still wasn't back. He had looked distracted when he returned, the elation still glimmering over his face. This afternoon, she guessed, had been their first assignation. So there's a misrecognition happening here. The Tai Tais misrecognize what happened or misrecognize what's going on as purely a fair. Yeah. But what they see is... Mr. Yi's elation at the feeling of having been the object of love. Yes. But where they misrecognize affair, what has really happened is he has just gotten back from rounding up Wang Jiajie's friends and executing them. Yeah, executing them all along with Wang Jiajie. So, yeah, it, it's quite, quite complex stuff that's going on here. True, true. She's good. Zhang Eileen, she's good. I'd like to look back at kind of what you mentioned earlier about comparing this to Casino Royale, which is another spy novel, and we are moving to spy novels soon. Yes, this is more of a spy story, but I think there is a significant romance to it. And in James Bond, it's a similar flip. 
half romance, half spy, or something around there. For James Bond, it's interesting. We've said before, if the romance is successful, it will end the whole series of James Bond, because then he will be a stay-at-home person. There won't be any spy hijinks anymore. This is a short story that is ended at the end of a profession of love, and it would be ended either way. So it has no life for a sequel. But I think it's interesting to think about the other romances we've read, the past three books. You know, we read Sense and Sensibility, we read Wuthering Heights, and we read uh, Madame Bovary. Lots of them have these different elements. There's an affair going on here. There's suspicions. There's also thinking about the right partner. In this story with Wang Jiazi, she has a all these friends who are students who are trying to plot against Mr. E and kill him. And they're all pretty stupid. Like, none of the decisions they make are that great. They have this plot that falls apart, and she has kind of a weird partner that she's forced with to make this thing happen. And they constantly, she constantly compares this kind of weaselly student to Mr. E and how Mr. E is the right choice for her. So in a way, it does remind me, even though it's more of a spy story, it does remind me of these romances we've read in the past, where Sense and Sensibility is thinking about, okay, who is the right partner? There's this one guy who I kind of have something with, but it's not what I'm interested in. It's not right for me. Here, it's very tragic. The one who turns out to be right for her in her mind ends up, once she saves his bacon, she he roasts her. You know, she, he kills her. He's responsible for her death. I think it's interesting as a, as a failed romance. Let's, let's think back a little bit. Failed romances. Because like you said with James Bond, in James Bond, if, if the romance were to be successful, the story yeah. would end. Yeah. So <laughs> the last one we read was Madame Bovary which I think we can all agree is a failed romance. Yeah. Before that was Wuthering Heights, which I thought was a failed romance upon reading, but now upon rethinking about it later, it's like, well, they ended up spiritually together forever. It's successful to them. Yes. It's successful to them, if not deeply traumatizing to everyone else. <laughs> Including Sense the readers. Sensibility, it's not a successful romance between who you think is going to get together, but it is a successful romance between two characters who are oblique. What did we read before Sense and Sensibility? That's the first one. Sense and oh, Sensibility, okay. Wuthering Heights, then Madame Bovary, now this. No. This one is, in a spiritual sense, a successful romance. In the afterword by by Ang Lee, and this, this edition that I read is the edition that came out after the film version by Ang Lee was released. So he wrote an afterword to the story. And he says that, a Weihu Zotan is a person who, after being eaten by a tiger, is forced as a ghost to do their bidding. He says that what the ghost does to do their bidding is the person's ghost willingly works for the tiger, helping to lure more prey into the jungle. So he says this is a common phrase, and it was used to refer to Chinese who collaborated with the Japanese occupiers during the war. If we're thinking about this phrase, then Yi alludes to the phrase to describe himself like he describes his position is that of the tiger in the movie hmm. oh in the book as well he he alludes to this in the in the story oh now now in the original chinese text of this that allusion oh, oh, oh. is supposedly made clear not in the translation but in the afterward ang, ang lee talks about the original chinese text uh-huh. so Zhang Anlin is working on this level so when he's talking about how she is his ghost the reader already understands that he is a tiger. He is a Chinese working for the Japanese. Yeah. He is his ghost. So in this sense of like, like, yeah, the, the mythical, like 
you know, the the ghosts who do the tiger's bidding, they're with the tiger forever. He views her ghost as being with him forever. There's almost a Wuthering Heights spiritual. Yes. Like they have they have come together forever from beyond the grave. Even if he's still living, her ghost is with him forever. Yeah, it makes me think too, he's a ghost creating a ghost. Ghosts make ghosts. And it's the same kind of thing with evil old Heathcliff. Ghosts all you the know. way down. Ghosts all the way down. Yes. What a clear bottom. I mean, there's a lot going on with the characters of this, but the translation of this, we never talk about translations. As as we talked earlier, this was published in 1979, so well into the establishment of the People's Republic of China. As a background, there's there's two systems for romanizing Chinese into English, one of which is the one that I think all of us are familiar with, pinyin, which is also like the global and academic and literary standard. People in Taiwan don't don't be angry at me for saying that, but that's <laughs> kind of what is generally used. The old version, which would have been in use at the time in which the story is set, is called Wade Giles. Wade Giles is notoriously frustrating because they will write out names and words and concepts, but the actual pronunciation of it is just totally different than what's being written out. It's it's so you may have noticed that we've all referred to the main character's name with different pronunciations throughout the recording of this podcast, it's because the main character's name is written in Wade Giles. I, I Just before the recording of this, I actually found the pinion pronunciation of her name. The way it's written here is just insane and totally incorrect. Anyways, the point about translation is the translator of this story says that in order to give it a period piece feel, she has transliterated all of the names into Wade Giles in order to make it feel like the 1940s, you know, in order to feel like World War II. Yeah, yeah. Oh, with the exception of certain names, which might be confusing. And she uses place names like, like, like an easy example is this is like, like Nanking. She uses Nanking in there. Well, the, the name of the city is pronounced Nanjing. That's how it's written in Pinyin. But anyways... Yeah, she says, in the interest of creating a period mood. And I think, anyways, that was a long rant. I've taken up all the audio time, but that was just like one of the more interesting aesthetic choices of this English presentation. So maybe a question I would pose to you is, do you feel like this is a valid translation choice? So in Taiwan, everything's Wade Giles when you see signs and no one knows how to pronounce anything. Yeah, Wade Giles is awful for an English speaker. And maybe it's just the fact that I'm used to opinion, but it just looks horrible as well. All these random like apostrophes everywhere. So, so a comparison point I'll make is the King James Bible, which was yeah written at a time when people are using and speaking modern English. Sure. But they made the translator there made the choice to translate the King James Bible using archaic language terms like thee, thy, thou, things like that, which which gesture back to maybe more Middle English to give the text a feeling of antiquity. Like, like we're not going to translate it into modern English as though it is a contemporary document. We're going to translate the Bible as though it feels like it's something that came from centuries ago. And, and to me, what this translator is doing is a very similar thing. Mm-hmm. We want this text to feel like it comes from a long time ago, despite the fact that it was written and published, or not written, but we'll say published in 1979. I don't know. I love translation stuff. 
this is somewhat different too, because I think lots of the, the, the Bible comes from a Western background and is translated into English for Western readers. So there's a closer connection between the two languages. This is translated from Chinese to English for Western readers. And it's interesting to say, I want to give foreigners the feeling of authenticity as a foreigner. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I would love to read more Eileen Zhang or Zhang She's Eileen, incredible. however we're going to However, we're going to, I mean, we've, I think we've all read more Chang Eileen, but I think yeah. for this podcast, this is, this is like one of those authors that's like always a pleasure for me to, to come back to. I love it. Yes. Um, yeah. She's a great writer. And you can tell how influential her sort of stories would be on like movies, like in the mood for love as well. Right. Oh, there's sort of straight out of the, there are playbook. still movies like every two or three years, a Chang Eileen movie comes out either directly from or a TV show directly from something she wrote or like you said in the mood for love is inspired by john eileen at risk of being a little bit redundant here can we think about a near an equivalent of eileen chang in terms of like in, in u.s writing let's say that's sort of a wartime romance or as you think it's a uniquely sort of chinese thing to have writer like eileen Zhang. i mean i i haven't read hemingway since high school but to me that kind of like hemingway that try that that triangle of like Hemingway, the film Casablanca. Maybe F. Scott Fitzgerald. And and... F. Scott Fitzgerald. Yeah, The Great Gatsby. That kind of like yeah. like erotic desire mixed in with kind of like yeah. glamour, a, a backwards looking glamour. She translated Hemingway. Did you know? That doesn't surprise me. She translated Old Man and the Sea and was a successful translation, I think, that circulated quite a bit. I really liked the action in this story, and I don't often like action in stories. But it makes me excited for spy stuff when there there are like really tense scenes, not only for the planning, but for the the five or six minutes of, okay, this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen, and then it starts happening. And it reminds me, not from a, not of a spy novel, but it reminds me of 310 to Yuma when we did Westerns, where everything's about to happen. It's in an enclosed space. People are getting ready. People are kind of excited for the thrill, also nervous for the thrill. There's just people glancing at each other, people are reading into things too much. So it reminded me of like a, a shootout. And at the end, there's supposed to be a shootout. And all we get is a sound. They don't know if it's a car backfiring, something falling over, or if it is a gunshot. But I love the scene of Mr. E when she says, when Wong says to Mr. E, Miss Wong says to Mr. E, run. He like jumps over the banister, shoots down the stairs. He's going like three stairs at once runs out the door, everyone's like, what is happening? Why is he going out there? And then there's just a gunshot and someone running, or the sound of a gunshot. Very exciting. I hope to get yeah. some of that in spy novels coming up. Yeah, yeah definitely a very similar engine to the three tens of humor. So we're essentially building towards something that like we're always at the just before the climax, and it just sort of feels inevitable by the end. Well, the author creates a kind of like clock, like you imagine like a clockmaker or like a, a, a tinker, you know? Like every character is a little piece and they wind it up and everyone turns as they're supposed to and you're just waiting for like the cuckoo to you know come out <laughs> and you know but, but the cuckoo is of course a gunshot and it's it's cool how you recognize this I mean, we've all identified this happening in this story but there's no cuckoo here yeah. it's wound up and wound up and wound up and when it goes the guns don't the du- the guns don't go off. Instead, mm. it backfires, and all of our protagonists wind up dead. I mean, that to me is like I don't. That I, I feel like it's a deliberate anticlimax, really. Mm. Yeah, you know, as much as we can, you know, talk. I I do not think it's too successful. Romance. 
sex. Oh, there's no overlap between their actual romantic feelings with one another in life. The moment she realizes he actually loves her, he immediately runs away. And then he kills her. And it's only after she's dead that he realizes he has feelings for her. So I feel like it's, de- it's not a successful romance in, in you know, terrestrial terms because she's dead and he's running away. When th- There's no overlap between their romantic interest in each other. There's no big kiss. There's no big moment. You know, she could have easily sort of said, you know, I'll run. And he could have, like, put his finger to his lips and said, I will, I, will, I will make sure I save you and then run away. No, he runs away, saves his own life. Then afterwards, after she's dead, after she's conveniently dead and not able to mess with his life anymore, then he's like, but nice that she did love me. I'll always remember her. So it doesn't seem to me a successful romance. I don't know if you guys agree. And I think it's by design. I don't think it's a successful book. I think it's an unsuccessful romance. Yeah, purposely. Yeah. Well, I, I think the meaning of run, like the mm-hmm. symbolic meaning in terms of their relationship is totally ambiguous and open for debate. Like, from a certain lens, her telling him to run for his life is the big kiss. You know what I mean? It's the moment of her kind of giving up everything else for their quote-unquote love. It is. I think what I doubt is the, re- the reciprocity of that. Yeah. It's only on reflection that, that there's a reciprocity yeah. in his Yeah, mind. exactly. Yeah. And by that point, it's too late. At that point, he's already killed her. And anyway, he's already, you know, he's already killed her. And then he start, thought, do I, you know, do I really return to feelings? He's not had the agonized moment of like, do I still execute after all I've learned? No, he still does it. He only sort of indulges in this sort of like retrospective love for her almost as a luxury after business has been taken care of. Yeah. Her being business in this case. So yeah. it feels almost like vanity on his part to then retrospectively say that there was romance between them. At least it would save the difficulty of actually, you know, learn that impact his life. I like this quote of his kind of retrospection, which is, now that he'd enjoyed the love of a beautiful woman, he could die happy, without regret. He could feel her shadow forever near him, comforting him. Almost like that's how he wants it. And I, I wonder if this sort of morbidity of character sort of speaks to his status as ultimately a villain in this story. He's, he is one of the people who collaborated with the Japanese. I think popular sentiment for readers of the story would be that the people who did that were villains. Um, so, you know, I kind of think that Mr. E is supposed to be a villain here. And this retrospective almost sort of perverse love he feels to her only in death as his ghost just seems to be a reflection of his sort of lack of moral character more than anything to me but maybe sort of overplaying that you know moralizing hand here but yeah i don't think we're supposed to think of mythy as being a, a good character he's a bad guy i think it's fair to moralize here he's not he's not a good guy he reminds me of that moment when he said when she says run and he doesn't say anything. He runs and later makes the order to have her killed. It reminds me a lot of Sense and Sensibility of the John Willoughby character who starts to court Marianne, you know, makes Marianne completely fall in love with him. Marianne's head over heels. She's going to she's imagining everything has happened that he's already proposed. But when he leaves, they start to talk about, well, did did he ever say he loves you? Did he ever actually promise anything? Did he propose to you? And she realizes, oh, no, it was all a perform it well maybe he really loved her but maybe it was just a performance he never actually committed anything there's also a massive difference in it it seems to me almost more similar than than to willoughby almost to ruan oh in madame bovary yeah madame bovary the sober mm. experienced guy almost mm-hmm. taking advantage of emma bovary this experienced seducer who's sort of using her for a while where it's sort of thrills mm-hmm. and then discarding her you have to remember in the, the, the dynamic in this relationship. It's not 
one of the quality. You know, we've got Misty, who we've talked about, is a very, he's a much older man, extremely very wealthy, experienced, has done this many yeah. different times, many different women. Her, she slept with one person before, who's the only other person in her group who's actually slept with anyone before because he went to a brothel one time. That constitutes experience among these young sort of rebels. And she is very much new to this world of love and uh, romance. She's never loved anyone before. She's never been loved by anyone before. So this moment that she actually feels like she's been loved by someone is such an overwhelming like, moment that she really loses herself and gives away the plot. But that really is just a sign of her own sort of naivety and inexperience as much as anything, I think. So I think this this different, you know, this massive imbalance in terms of power and experience seems to count against this being a genuine romance as well to me. John, I like what you're saying about a naivety because yeah. what's what's interesting to me is how every person in this plot, like we talked about them being students and how it's important to that they aren't identified as students, but they're not just like students of politics, students of literature, whatever. They're they're actors. We learn about how, like, when they were together, they actually did stage plays together. And now that the war is on, they're they're revolutionaries, but they're they're also kind of just acting as revolutionaries. And John Eileen is very explicit about this in her figurative language. So, just I have two quick quotes. So, she had in a past life been an actress. So, not how we would say in English, in a past life I was an actress. It means before the war she was an actress. And here she was, still playing a part, but in a drama too secret to make her famous. She views herself as still being an actress. Yeah. But then when they're in the ring store, she talks about herself as experiencing stage fright. Her stage fright always evaporated once the curtain was up, but this waiting was torment. Yeah. So so it's, and there's dozens and dozens of, of examples throughout the, the story like this, but Eileen Jung constantly refers to the psychological experiences of these characters in the theater or in the language of theater and performance. And it's really interesting how they are still acting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of, again, the question of that reality breaks through when she sort of finally, you know, sort of confesses and feels this moment that he is, she is loved by him. But that's when the sort of the, the act ends and she immediately snaps back into reality. Yes, to what you're saying, but it's like also. Does she stop acting when she says run? Is the play over when she says run? Or does she say run like as the character that she has become? Like like who says run? Her authentic self or the or the person she's she's acting as? It's curtains down, the play has failed, she's ending the play. There's moments where she's trying to get him to stay longer so the assassination can actually work. And that's another moment where she uses descriptive language of a play where she says dialogue she knew was the best filler of stage time or she's got a delay so she's creating lines as an actress she also refers to the ring at this point as too bad it's just a prop and it's just for this play we had to put it back but run he bursts out of this little almost place it's like a stage it's so tiny and goes right into the light and then we don't see anything so now the audience can't even see the play anymore so I think what she says, run, it does ruin the play or it, it destroys the play at yeah. that point. It's like experimental theater where they, they, the you know, they're like in the play and then like still on the stage, they break the fourth wall or end the play while still being in the, you know what I mean? Like if this whole thing is play, but 
But, you know, like the play doesn't end just because she says run. The character ends because she says run. The setting ends. Mm. But, you know, in a sense, like they're still in the novel. They're still living. They're still on the stage well, still when, the the sta- yeah. when the play ends. So what are we left with? It, so in that sense, it's almost like experimental theater in the sense of like a radical shift mm. happens where the characters no longer under self, understand themselves as being within this narrative and a new narrative begins in which the characters have awareness of themselves as actors. Yeah. But ultimately, it's an abortive attempt because immediately after that, you know, it ends almost way out, like, um, anticlimactically, right? There is no second life. That's pretty much her last act. So in what sense is it a suicide? Like a suicide for love? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know. But her next life seems to be as a ghost, you know. She'd been ensnared by the tiger and now she lives as his ghost, right? But... If, if that's the case, then what is she, how is it that she is, you know, enticing others to, to join the tiger? Is it just that through the romance, she has ended up working there badly for exactly the thing she was supposed to be working against? Because ultimately she has defeated her own plot in doing this. And therefore she is acting in the interest of the tiger here. Yeah. In becoming his ghost. But I, I don't know, is that an endorsement of love? Seems like neither romantic hopes nor political aims have been met here yeah she's failed on two levels she being you know one tasha the, the protagonist has, has failed on it and both frames it's not as if she's failed politically but in so doing succeeds in love or vice versa she's done neither she's sort of neither has it ignoring yeah. it she's just lost out meanwhile mr Yi wins again you know he wins on both levels he gets what he wants and he yeah. survives to live another day you know he lives to see another day politically so he seems to be the, the the winner on both fronts. Well, yeah. that's kind of the historical fiction aspect of this creeping in. Because when you set a story in this setting, it's doomed to fail because we know the history of it. And, and this is based off of a real person. I don't have the information in front of me. The, but it's kind of like the fictionalizing of a person who... Yes, the Romana Clef. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's the elements of Eileen Jong's life that are folded into here, but it's also a person who literally tried to sleep with you know ba- who basically performed this plot was found out and was killed along with all of her friends like the details are on wikipedia i don't have them in front of me but yeah but but like in setting it here it is in in choosing this story it inevitably ends with failure unless eileen jong was going to do like a tarantino-esque rewriting of the the historical record like in the way that tarantino will write it so that Hitler gets gunned yeah. down by a machine gun. You know what I mean? In his World War II stories. Yeah. Yeah. But but she doesn't seem interested in doing that. She seems interested in sticking to the historical record because it's a tragedy. All right. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>